I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. This week, we're looking at the way labels shape our perspectives on food. I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but is it acceptable to judge a wine by its label? There are some labels that I'd say are so bad they're good. As long as your paperwork's in good shape, you'll get a grass-fed label. Tune in to this week's Meet and Three on Heritage Radio Network. That's Meet plus sign T H R E E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925, the first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L E C R E U S E T.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kathy Arroway. So we are headed into the holiday season. It's definitely mid to late fall. So this is the time of the year that I personally love to have dinner parties and just do more with my cooking and uh, have fun, More have more friends over. And um, I'm actually struggling to not say the word entertaining here right now because, <laughs> um, <laughs> because in the introduction to the book I'm holding right now, The author writes, the term entertaining makes me think of hostess trolleys and instructions on how to plump up your cushions. I don't really do entertaining. I just have friends over. Often I serve dinner or supper or whatever you want to call it in the midst of a mess. Otherwise, I wouldn't see friends at all. I'm happy to put a roasting pan on the table and ask someone else to carve. I'm terrible at carving. I don't think you should kill yourself over dinner. But at the same time, I do love all the stuff that goes with it. Table linen, plates, old cutlery. And it goes on and it's golden. And uh, I might as well just tell you that is written by none other than Diana Henry, who is joining us on the line. Hey, Diana. Hello, Kathy. <laughs> so wonderful to hear you. And uh, You too, and I'm talking to you from my properly fall day. We've had really ooh. unseasonally warm weather here. That's and great. just yesterday it changed. So I'm hoping there may even be a little frost tomorrow morning because mm. I just like the seasons to be to come at the right time. You know? <laughs> I know. So I'm glad. I, I understand when it's jarring and it doesn't quite work out the way you imagine. No, no and it, it, it mucks up all your eating plans. You know, if you want mm-hmm. to eat pumpkin, you want to get on with the mm. pumpkin eating. You don't want to wait another fortnight. Mm. Yeah. Well, so you're in, uh, you're back at home now? Um, yes, I am. And I have actually a pot of Boston baked beans in the oven. It's mm. not to be found anywhere in this cookbook, but that's actually what I've, I can smell the molasses. And I put smoked bacon in mine, so the smoked bacon filling the kitchen. But yeah, that's, it's, the, it's the first really cool day we've had and it's going to be for supper. So Ooh. I'm happy. That sounds so... I haven't made that in ages, but it's just it sounds mm. so comforting. I need to go for that. I hadn't made it in about <laughs> three years, but it just seemed the perfect thing, so I'm glad I got it in the oven. Oh, wonderful. So 
Um, Diana, we last talked about your book, Simple, a few years ago. And yeah. uh, now you have this wonderful book called How to Eat a Peach, Menus, Stories, and Places. And, and it's very different, isn't it? It is. It is. It's about, it's about menus and um, creating, uh, well, how would you say, a sort of... A sort of mini well, universe around a menu. Well, I do you know what it was one of those I wanted for years to write a book of menus because mm. I I really loved them. I've I've loved that since I was a teenager. I used to keep a notebook of menus that I was gonna never cook. They were just fantasy things, but I like making mm. them up. I like thinking about what dish went after a particular one and then what you'd follow on with from pudding and and I just like the kind of thing of what flavors went together and and what mm-hmm. things jarred. And my publisher kept saying, I don't think anybody really uses menus. I don't think anybody really cooks like that anymore. And then when I talked to friends, people were more enthusiastic. But it wasn't just to do with the thing of um, finding out what went better in terms of dish after dish. It was, as you say, kind of about creating a kind of atmosphere or, or taking you somewhere. And when I started to plan the book, that became even more of a theme because when I made up the menus that I really wanted to cook and wanted them to go in the book, I discovered that a lot of them were attached to place. I mean, mm-hmm. really a lot of them. Um, and I think that was because I grew up in Ireland and we never traveled anywhere. I didn't leave Ireland until I was 16. So unlike my children who had gone everywhere by the time they were about six, mm-hmm. um, I, my ha- traveling had to be done in my head. Mm. Um, so I think a lot of it was to do with my imagination and I would read books I'd read fiction I mean I read Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House on the Prairie and I read The Arabian Nights and things like that and I thought about the ingredients that I was reading about so pomegranates and flower waters or if it was America I was thinking about beans and corn and pumpkins and most of those things we couldn't we couldn't get those ingredients Mm. there weren't even any pumpkins when I was growing up so um, I think that I spun fantasies out of mm. cooking, out of dishes, which was which was just like making up stories. And I was surprised that that was such a dominant theme when I started to put the menus together. But that's what the book then came to be about. It came to be a lot, not all of it, but a lot of it is about a, a sense of place and how you can go places through cooking. Yeah. So you would make menus about ingredients that you've never tasted before, like... Or yeah, when I was you? when I was when I was in my teens, it was mm-hmm. more things that I did okay. know about, or at least I could uh, imagine. I'd been to France when I was sixteen, so a lot of them were based on that. Or they were about we could just about cook Italian food, okay. and I used my mum's cookbooks to create things. But no, mm. I couldn't. In any case, you couldn't get pomegranates in Ireland at that time. I see. But um, but food has just always been about the imagination for me, as much as it is to do with what you actually eat. Um, so it's not just technical. It is about it's, it, mm-hmm. it is about a fantasy, but a good fantasy. Not not a. I don't think that's a negative thing at all. No, and I think that it's a the the story aspect of it is so fascinating. Do you think about menus when you go to sleep and or just get inspired all of a sudden with like, oh, maybe that would go well together for yeah, dinner? Yeah, I do. That's awful. Yeah. Isn't it? it makes me sound like such a nerd. No, I mean I, I slightly do it with dishes mm-hmm. because that's always about kind of like, oh, mm-hmm. is this if rhubarb goes with ginger and you know I kind of will build things up in a in a way about dishes mm. but the menu thing yes when I'm sitting on the, um, the subway in London and you know there's nothing else to bother me and I can be on the internet I have a notebook and that's what I will do I'll think oh 
um, this would be good. So if I did this dish that I really want to cook, what would go after it and what would go before it? And then who will I ask to come mm, and eat this? Yes, I that's mean, the fun part it too. Sounds, it mm-hmm. sounds like I'm not the most wonderful hostess no. in the world. <laughs> but because I like cooking, I like the actual process of it, yeah. <clears throat> quite often I'll plan a meal and then I'll think, oh, who will really like to eat this? Yes. I tend to do that then more than the other way around, which right. is um, inviting people and then thinking what you're going to cook. I tend to think of a thing I'd like to do, and then I think, oh, who will I invite to that? Um, and it, it's, you know, it, it's fine. It works that way around. But I think it's, I am very focused on the dishes and mm-hmm. the thing that I want to create. Now, a lot of people decide to throw a dinner party because of a birthday or maybe a holiday. Um, some occasion, I get, I sense that that's not always the case for you. What inspires you to decide to throw a party in the first place? It will, I mean, quite often it will be a sort of food thing. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a, there's a menu in the book called I Can Never Resist Pumpkins, and I do love them, mm-hmm. partly because I didn't really grow up with them. So it might be something like um, the pumpkins arrive here yes. at the end of September, right. and then I'll think I really want to make my first pot of pumpkin soup. Um, and then I'll think... That's you, a great you know, reason. You can, you, can, you can build a lunch on soup. I don't really like soups at dinner because I think they're too filling, but mm. you can build an entire meal um, for a Saturday lunch on a pot of soup. So it'll be, okay, I'm going to do the pumpkin soup, so what will I go, what will happen after that? And then in the book, there's a Tuscan grape bread with Italian cheeses after that because bread and cheese work with a soup thing, but it's, it's still bread and cheese, but it's a little bit different. There's a little bit more to it. And, and before that, um, we start this meal with roasted autumn vegetables although there's still some there's still some leaves for crunch there's chicory some bitter leaves and some radishes as well and I do it with a hazelnut and roast pepper and anchovy relish which is based Mm. on um a Piedmontese um, uh, relish. So I do that. But you see, that's very simple. Um, and I like those lunches. I like those lunches. You know, because you just think soup and cheese and bread, it's a very simple thing. But yeah. you can make it a bit more and make it quite special yes. by doing that. And it's, um, you know, it's November soon here now, so white truffles will be coming in. And I know they are super expensive, mm-hmm. but I look forward to that happening every year mm-hmm. as well because they come in. And we've got, I mean, I really will be influenced by ingredients. Um, our blackberries are nearly over now because they were quite early this year because it, so, it was so hot. Mm. And, but, but pears and apples and things like that. Um, so the arrival of certain ingredients mm. will, yeah, that will definitely have an, have an impact on me. The time of year very much has a, right. has a, has a bearing on it. That's a wonderful reason. And I just, I just thought of, what about a mushroom dinner? Have you ever done a whole dinner based around different shrooms? I've not done a whole dinner <laughs> based on them. I could imagine that I would do something where they were kind of like the centerpiece. Right. Like so I might truffle. do a fantastic braise of beef with wild mushrooms mm. um, as the kind of center thing. And then I'd work backwards and forwards to see how I'd start and how I'd finish. Mm. And I don't think you need to start. Most people start with the main course. That's what they think about when they think about yes. cooking a special dinner. But I don't think you have to do that. I think you can start with a pudding that you really want to cook mm-hmm. and work backwards from that. And then that will that you will end up with kind of more interesting things that way, maybe. I mean, the title of the book, How to Eat a Peach, um, that came about because of this dinner I saw when I first went to Italy when I was mm-hmm. in my 20s. 
And the people at the next table, um, and it was my, my first trip there, so I was taking everything in. The people at the next table, they didn't have a dessert in the way um, British or American people would think about dessert. So no tiramisu or anything like that. They just had a bowl of white peaches brought by the waiter and a bottle of very cold Moscato. Mm-hmm. And um, they just, they, they have their peaches and they cut it into slices and then they poured the wine, they, they, put, they dropped the slices into their wine glasses and then they topped their glasses up with Moscato mm-hmm. and then they left them to macerate right. for about 15 minutes and then they drank the wine and they ate the peaches which now of course each tasted of the other because they'd been infused with the different flavors that each ingredient had and I just thought this was wonderful uh, because they had you know they they had this ending which was very simple mm-hmm. um, but very elegant and also they were doing I mean what if you've got really wonderful white peaches apart from just eating it completely yeah. on its own. Mm-hmm. What else, what's the better to do with that, really? You don't want to put that into any kind of pudding. Um, mm-hmm. So that taught me something about food, watching that particular mm-hmm. meal. But also, I, I also thought, you can start with a dish that's at the end of the meal and work backwards because something magical like that, it deserves to have a special place and yes. you shouldn't just always think it's the main course that comes right. first, really. Absolutely. And I love the idea of sort of, spying on uh, rituals that you've never seen before but were totally normal this is how they ate the peach and and learning from that yes. and uh, it's yes. wonderful I, I love that each menu actually here has um a recollection of of why you shared this menu and sometimes it's travel related um often as you mentioned yes um, well there's a new york one which is yeah. probably my favorite <laughs> it's my well, you'll, you'll, it'll be kind of no news to you, but it's kind of my favorite one in the book because mm-hmm. I didn't go to New York until I was 30. Oh, but wow. when I was about five or six, my mum started um, to read me a set of American storybooks. And there was an American story um, uh, about this girl called Rosa Too Little. Mm-hmm. And she lived, she lived in Brooklyn, actually. Mm-hmm. And it was about how she wanted to join the library. And I wanted to join the library at the same time as well. And I wasn't big enough to do it yet. And neither was she. Mm-hmm. So it, and I had, it had um, descriptions of her, you know, sitting on the, the stoop and everything outside her house. And as a child, you, I felt connected to this, this girl in New York because she was going through the same things as me. But I started that, and it's also a very Irish thing, to kind of have fantasies about New York oh. and the United States. States from a very young age and so this thing kind of grew in my head and then I didn't I didn't actually go to New York till I was 30 and I was on my honeymoon and I sort of looked at it through a child's eyes mm-hmm. and over the years I've got to, to know it much better but it still has that kind of thrill for me you know it's it's New York is very New York there's nowhere else like it and over the years I have eaten specific things there that I associate with it, like steak. I always have mm-hmm. steak when I go to New York. It mm-hmm. was not Ireland that made me keen on oysters. It was going to New York because they're so cheap yes. there and I'd have them at happy hour. So my New York, my Manhattan menu is um, oysters and then um, and steak with fresh horseradish and um, roasted beets. And then I made, um, I kind of baked cream a bit like a panna cotta, but yeah. based on the flavors in a Manhattan cocktail. And um, I love that. I don't know. I that's think that's so and when I kind of when, when I kind of cook that for people, I mean, you get the, I'm able to tell the, the story of why I've chosen it, and then you want to have the rest of the meal. But these things are special to me. I yeah. I didn't mean the book to be as 
autobiographical as it turned out to be. That wasn't my intention. And I had to pull back and make it not too much about that. Um, but it's interesting when you, you look back at your, your cooking life and you see what has influenced you and what countries have meant a lot to you. And it, it's it's more complex than you would expect. It was a fair, I learned a lot about myself actually writing yeah. that book, which wasn't something I expected at all. Well, I'm so glad that you didn't pull back too much because I really enjoy those those sections oh, and um, reading this. You know, every menu is a story in its own. And, well, and um, it's not always completely cheerful. Sometimes when I was mm-hmm. writing this stuff, I'd um, I'd give the essays to my editor at my publisher, and she'd mm-hmm. say, "Oh, it's a bit <laughs> there are bleak patches <laughs> in this because there's a there's a whole there's a whole well, story about going to." Spain for the first time, which right. I find very frightening, actually. Uh-huh. Um, so that, that whole, that menu is called Darkness and Light. I mean, I've come to love Spain. But it is a very, when I first went there, um, it was very visceral. It, was, okay. uh, it seemed very raw to me. Mm. And, um, and, and she said, maybe you should make it a bit more jolly. And I said, <laughs> your experiences of food and your experiences in new countries aren't always jolly. Sometimes they're kind no, of frightening. Sometimes true. they're a bit bleak. They're just full of light and shade. And I think we don't always have to be on a Provencal picnic. I think that's how we should <laughs> talk about food, really. Yeah, and it doesn't make me want to eat it any less, too. That, you no, know, there no, was a bleak me neither. <laughs> no, oh. it's kind of, it's interesting, though, that I cho- I've yeah. got that arroz negro, so it's black rice that mm. I've gone for. Well, because I'd never, I'd never had a dish before where, um, you know, it was actually the color of night. I mean, it was delicious, and it's deeply, deeply, fishy, more fishy than anything I'd ever tasted before because it's so intense. But to be, uh, you know, to be a 17-year-old and find yourself in Spain eating stuff that's actually black and has yeah. a romesco sauce with it, which is scarlet, or a saffron alioli, which is so yellow, it was quite mind-blowing at mm. the time. Mm. <laughs> that's, yeah. And, yeah, I think that that makes an impression. It's definitely a visual, visceral memory that you will never forget yes. for a while. No, no. <laughs> um, well, I want to talk a little bit more about how you've evolved as a food writer, as an eater, as a cook. Um, but we're, we need to cut, cut to a quick little commercial interlude, and we'll be right back. Okay. <laughs> Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. They've been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories the cookware creates and the style it expresses. My name is Kat Johnson. I'm the communications director at Heritage Radio Network. When I'm not making food radio, I'm making food, and my favorite cookware is the 8-quart marine blue Dutch oven that never leaves my stovetop. Before we got our Le Creuset, the cookware we used most often was an antique Griswold cast iron pan. It didn't take long for me to realize how much I'd been missing enamel cast iron in my life. Le Creuset has a superior heat retention of cast iron, but paired with the unparalleled performance and ease of enamel. That means delicious food with easy cleanup. Head to lecreuset.com slash HRN, that's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T, dot com slash hrn to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals hrn listeners will get 20 percent off the new Le crusade cookbook with the code hrn the 
Okay, we are back chatting with Diana Henry. Her latest book is How to Eat a Peach. And I must add also, it is a, a warm and fuzzy book in the sense that it's a great kitchen companion, <laughs> but also it is literally fuzzy. Um, the cover is this, I don't know what it is. Um, but the skin it's, of a, it's like the skin of a peach. I knew when they <laughs> exactly. told me about it. I thought, really? You find a fabric that really is like the skin of a yeah. peach and it's actually elegant. Yeah. It's not going to do something kind of awful. No. But when I when they brought me in to my publishers and they gave me the mock-up of it with the right fabric on it, they made me close my eyes uh-huh. and then <laughs> touch it. And oh. then I opened my eyes and it was, I just cr- I cried <laughs> because um, it was just right yes. for the book because the book is quite a lot about memory and not mm. that I intended to do sort of, you know, reflections recollected in tranquility or anything like that. I just thought it, it gave the right kind of feel about it because a lot about was about remembering about the past, really. Mm-hmm. And it had that softness is nice. Not everybody has loved it. Kim really? Severson from the New York Times, no, she wasn't so keen on it. She's the only one who said something to me on Twitter that she wasn't, she wasn't so wild about it. Some people who are very okay. um, much kitchen-bound, um, they, they think they have to be extra careful of it because it might get stained and it isn't wipeable. But my my own copy, actually, <laughs> I'm just a bit more careful. Yeah. Than, I mean, my books are <laughs> usually, too. you know, they're completely messy. But yeah. I just, I tend to set this one aside a little more than I do with others. Yeah, I would love to see all the splotches on people's covers too. That I think that, that there's oh, something the nice be- about I think that. It's the, <laughs> for a food writer, it's right. the it's the best kind of compliment uh, you yeah. can give them. Uh, Nigella Lawson's book, How to Eat, is now 20 years old and it's mm. been reissued. And a lot of people on social media are posting pictures of, you know, they're Aww. very, I mean, some of them are absolutely battered. Mine doesn't look too bad compared to others. <laughs> um, but it's quite sweet because I, I put up a picture of my very old copy with a new copy of the new, the new edition, which I'm about to give to my son, who was born um, 20 years ago as well. So it seems very fitting that he should have this book that I bought just when he was born, actually. Aww. And he's he's starting to learn to cook out of that. Well, I I'm, I can't wait to see how people stain up this one <laughs> over the years. Um, no, I'm I'm looking forward to it as yeah. well. So Diana, you've been a longtime food writer. You've written I don't know how many books. Um, twelve, 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 twelve now, and you yeah. write for regularly yeah. in your column for the Sunday Telegraph. Um, yeah. But, you know, food writing was your second career. And uh, yeah. so you, you started out um, as a TV producer for the BBC mm-hmm. for 10 years. Yes. So, 14 years, actually, oh, before wow. I started to do any writing. Yeah. And um, so I'm, you know, this is an interesting sort of twist, but how did you decide to come into writing about food? It, it had always been something I absolutely loved. From a very early age, mm-hmm. I loved cooking. And um, it was a thing that in my home always seemed to make people happy. And for me, it was a it was a branch of making things. I, I liked making things as a child, and cooking was another one of those things. But I hadn't really intended to do it as right. a job at all um, because this sounds awful. But when I was at school and everything, people just didn't do it. They didn't mm-hmm. decide they were going to go and be chefs. Yeah. Um, but when I was in television, I did leave for a year. When I was thirty, I thought in, in that kind of way you you do when you think 30 is old. I mm-hmm. thought, oh my goodness, I'm 30 and life is passing me by and I love cooking. And I took myself out of television for a year and I went to cookery school. Mm-hmm. So I did a year of that and it was one of the best years of my life. Uh, but I went back to television again. I knew I couldn't be a chef. 
I mean, I can't do things fast enough. Um, mm -hmm. We had to go into work in restaurant kitchens while I was training, and they were they were hot and they were sweary, and there's a lot of banging of oven doors. And I knew that I wouldn't survive on that. Plus, I was already 30, and a lot of the other people at uh, chef school with me were 18. Yeah. Uh, so they could get up to speed physically. I wasn't going to be able to do that. I mm -hmm. didn't think. Um, but it was then when I had my, my son, my first son, who's, who's now 20, that I went back to television and basically lasted for six weeks. I was making this documentary series about the history of British gardening, which you think would be quite sweet and quite, yeah. and quite nice and not at yeah. all upsetting. Um, but I wasn't home any night before 10 p.m. And um, it just broke my heart to leave him. And yeah. that's just basically what happened. So I went in on a Monday morning and said, that's it. And that was the end of my television career. And um, I decided I would try and write. And I didn't, I honestly didn't know where that would take me. And I didn't have any great aims. I just thought if I can look after Ted and then I'll have more children and I work from home, then this will be a nice thing to do as an extra thing. And I've been surprised that what has transpired, has transpired because it, it, I didn't have a grand plan at all. Mm -hmm. That's, I think that's wonderful. Um, it shows that it came from something really just genuine. And, um, you know, you've been compared with writers like MFK Fisher and uh, Elizabeth David. And I'm curious, did you have any food writing idols or somebody who was your biggest sort of inspiration at that time? When... When I went to, when I grew up at home, we didn't have those very literary writers mm -hmm. in the home with Paul and cookbooks. We had things like um, Cordon Bleu part works and, and very sensible kind of books that were very practical. And then when I went to university, I discovered Jane Grigson. So one of the first really good books that I bought was Jane Grigson's fruit book, and it's still one of my favorite books. Mm. And then when I finished university and moved to London to work at the BBC, um, I bought another two books which were very, very key to me. And one was Claudia Roden's book of Middle mm, Eastern food. Yeah. And the other one was Alice Watershay Panisse Menu Cookbook. Mm -hmm. And all three of those women have had an enormous effect. N Alice, not because of writing, but because of that, that spirit, that yes. simplicity and that generosity. Yeah. And that just kind of like, this is food and let's love it. It very much tied in with what I'd experienced when I went to France at 16 on an exchange mm -hmm. trip. But, but Jane Grigson and Claudia Roden, they presented food within a context. Claudia um, was writing about the Middle East, and so she was writing about stuff that she... She's really an anthropologist as well as a cook. Yes. But also there were sayings in it and bits of poetry and fantastic descriptions. There's a piece in that book about her going to have tea with mm -hmm. her aunt in Egypt and it's about the tinkling of the glassware and the little spoons and what everything smelled like mm. and I remember the day I bought that it was, a, it was a day, it was in October so round about this time of year it was dark and it was rainy and I went back to my basement flat that I had in London, the first place I lived in in London and I lay on the sofa and read that until it was so <sighs> dark and I didn't even realise it, that I was only reading it by the street lamp outside Mm. Um, so, and that book and, and Alice's book, and to some extent, Jane Gregson's book as well, they all stayed on my bedside table for years. But Jane's book, I mean, she, she traveled all over the world to find recipes. But again, a scholarship and stories and, and bits of history and travelogue and everything 
went in. I, I talked to someone recently who was a very good friend of Jane, mm-hmm. and she said she would do much what I have always done as well. When you, when you have a topic, when you've got an ingredient to write about, you gather in all this research, you read everything that you can, and you get very excited. And then, you know, you produce your piece. But um, I, I like that the way that food was not just about instruction. It was yeah. set with its place in the world and within our lives and within her life. Yes. Um, some of her writing was, I mean, she will open a, she, she might open a, a piece about um, a particular fruit saying, oh, I was here with my feet in the wet grass. And you can immediately <laughs> see this. Sometimes she'll open with a particular fact. So it, it varies a lot. Yeah. Um, I was not really influenced by Elizabeth David at all, although a lot of British writers say mm-hmm. that they are, because I didn't, I didn't know who she was um, mm-hmm. until I was about 22. And I find her... I don't know, a bit restrained, a, a bit, mm. just a bit reserved and a, okay. a very, very English voice, yeah. which I don't relate to as well, although I did to Jane's voice, which was much, much warmer. Mm. But they're the people who've influenced me. And I have American writers that I love as well. I think I think Molly O'Neill is an mm. absolutely wonderful yeah. writer, fantastic prose. Mm-hmm. And um, that was that was a very important book. When I came to America when I was 30, that was the most significant book I took back home with me mm-hmm. was um, her A Well-Seasoned Appetite because I think the prose in that's just marvelous. And it just occurs to me, do you think there's any coincidence that these are all women writers? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I never chose them for that at yeah. all. But I think, I think women writers write very much for home cooks Mm -hmm. and that's what I've always been interested in I've been interested in not food as something to make for your showing how technical you can be or what you have managed to master but I really am very interested in what people are eating in their homes everywhere in the Mm -hmm. world so before I was a food writer when I went on holidays, I would, well, obviously I would talk to chefs in restaurants, but I would try, if I could, to make friends with people and get into their kitchen. Yes. <laughs> and I would come back with recipes. That was my thing way before I even had any intention of being a food writer. There were things that passed between, and it was usually between women, and things that you shared. And it was something I'd seen way back. You know, my mother did it, my granny did it, they did it with their friends. So yes. I was just continuing with that. I think it's, it is a really wonderful thing that women, I suppose men now as well, but that we share and we've always exchanged. Mm-hmm. That's a really good tip too, also when you're traveling, <laughs> is to sneak into kitchens oh, yeah, more. You take a bit back with you. You yeah. take a bit back with you, which is good. And you never forget those people. No, you can't get um, that from a restaurant. woman I met, mm-hmm. no, I got, I got snowed in in Friuli one Christmas mm-hmm. and the snow was so bad we couldn't get out of it. And, um, I was in an inn with this um, woman who was who was pregnant, and um, she would get very tired every afternoon. So I knew she was going to bed, and we used to have little chats when she got up. And she gave me she was from there, so she gave me her recipe for friuli and goulash, which is specific to that area. And also they have a thing called gubana, which is a bit like strudel, but also it's their version of it. And when I make this, I've never spoken to her since. We haven't kept in touch, but when I make those dishes, especially the goulash, and it's a you know dark November day here, I think about her and I think about what age that child that she was you know she's still carrying would be now. Yeah. And I like that connection. Yeah. that is so nebulous, but it was very, you know, food is yeah. a very intimate thing to share. And I think recipes are a very, it's like the 
kindness of strangers, you know, mm-hmm. kind of, I like that as well. And exchanging recipes is, is, a, is sort of like that. It's one of those gestures to people that you don't know very well, but they will keep it with them for a long time. Yeah, and I love the element of happenstance here that, that also comes through, you know, if you hadn't, you know, if it had been any other person, who knows, your cooking might be totally different today. <laughs> You know. Well, I might not. I wouldn't be doing that dish. Mm-hmm. So right. this, Heidi Swanson, um, uh, the American food writer, she has said that recipes are things that intersect our lives. And I think mm-hmm. that is a lovely phrase. Yeah. And it is indeed what they do. And we think the more important than you think they are. When my, when my granny died and we were clearing out her house, um, you know, we find the usual stuff. But we also find boxes and boxes of handwritten recipes and recipes that she'd pulled out of magazines and newspapers. Um, and it was like she had to, she was a very good cook, but she hadn't cooked all of the stuff that she'd collected. It was just this obviously hidden or quiet part of her life that we didn't know about and the pleasure for her. Um, so it is a slightly unsung thing, I think, in yeah. a way still, um, partly because it's something that women have always done. Yeah. And we're so different. Men become chefs and they, <laughs> and they kind of like do show off cooking and women have done this instead. I mean, things are changing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I don't think for women, I mean, it's interesting when you look at the kind of, when you look at the kind of restaurants that female chefs have as well, mm. it, it's, um, they're not, if, here, if you look at um, Rose Gray and Rose Rogers, who opened the River Cafe in London, okay. that it's, it's home cooking. Yeah. It isn't, it isn't chef kind of food. It's not complicated. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's yeah. interesting. Alice Waters, too. Yeah. Um, I, I love that. Um, so we only have a little bit of time left, but um, your career has expanded into a new medium for you, which is radio or podcasts. Yes. Recently. Yeah. So tell I, me about I, that. Well, it's kind of, it's a kind of new life, but it's an mm. old life since I used to work in TV. It's kind of like going, Aww. it's kind of going yeah. back in a really nice way. Sure. Um, I started to do, um, I started to do podcasts and I'm now doing them for Prince Street, which is based in New York. Oh. Um, so I've been doing them here for the Telegraph, who I work for. And when I was in New York um, in June, um, I did a podcast with, with um, Prince Street and talked to them about doing um, interviewing people here. And that's what I've been doing. So I've talked to Olya Hercules. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one on the Prince Street website with her. And I'm going to be talking to Mira Soda, who okay. um, is, an, is a writer here. I think you know a lot about there as well. Mm-hmm. And Claudia Roden as oh, well. Wow. So we have lots of things planned coming up. And I think it's just, it's a very, well, you'll know this because you did, it's a very freeing yes. um, kind of medium because it's not, it's not the same as working for um, a broadcast organization like mm-hmm. the BBC. Okay. They're more intimate. They're more chatty. They're, they're usually a bit longer. So there's more kind of largesse and you can talk mm. about more things that are kind of, you, things can flow around a bit more easily. Um, and I record them in people's kitchens usually <laughs> and that I think that makes a huge difference because you go in and you're talking at the kitchen table over a cup of coffee and usually I stay and eat with whoever I talk to so oh, the smells of what so they're great. cooking are in the house and that wasn't necessarily deliberate that just happened that yeah. just seemed to be sensible I was always doing them in the morning so then I'd stay for lunch um, so yeah I, I love doing them and I like doing them because they're not too rigid yeah. and we see where we go in them that sounds delightful They're i can't waiting. wait to, to listen to the next 
Um, and uh, I, you know, it's too bad you can't be here today to have some pizza with us at Roberta's. <laughs> I would, oh, listen, I would love that. I yeah. cannot tell you. I know I've got my Boston baked beans at I home, know. But I would love too. to be there at Roberta's <laughs> this evening. But I'll be back, yes. Kathy. I'll oh, that's wonderful. I'll be back before too long. Okay, So I'll have a New York meal. Let's do it. Another New York meal. Maybe steak. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time, Diana. And I hope everyone um, brings this warm, fuzzy book into their kitchen, How to Eat a Peach. Um, And uh, thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Ear Words. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.